0: 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, and you wait for for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. ah, oh, I did baptise also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Right, let's set the scene. Uh, situated in southern Greece... Uh, Corinth was a massive city. Uh, It was the third largest city in the whole of the Roman Empire, with a population of around about 200,000 people. Uh, The only places that were any bigger were were Rome itself and Alexandria in northern Egypt. So Corinth was huge. Uh, It was a very important trading city. If you see on that map just there... um, There's a very narrow neck of land separating two very important harbours, one on the east and the other on the west, and Corinth was right on that narrow neck of land. It was ideally situated to receive freight from from one port on one side and carry it the short distance over land over to the other side, to the other port, and therefore ships could avoid a very long and quite a dangerous voyage around the dangerous capes to the south. And so Corinth was very big and very important, and it was a thriving city. Uh, It was originally Greek, but then when Rome came along to take it over, of course it got destroyed then, but then Rome finally rebuilt it, and so the culture was a mixture of both Roman and Greek. And it was very immoral. Uh, Corinth was the centre of the worship of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and its temple had around about a thousand sacred prostitutes. But God did something really good in Corinth. Uh, On Paul's missionary trips, he he would usually arrive in a place and he'd preach the gospel, but usually the residents would be so offended by what he had to say, it'd only be a couple of days or a couple of weeks until he was run out of there and chased on to the next place, and often with them following along behind to try and tell the next town, oh, you don't want to listen to this fellow, he's speaking all this nonsense. Uh, But this didn't happen in Corinth. Yes, they did try to run him out of town, Uh, And they did try to bring charges against him, but the authorities heard these charges and they declared him innocent. And so Paul ended up being there for around about 18 months, which was a lot longer than what he stayed in most places. He had plenty of time to plant a church and then to get them started on the road to being disciples of Jesus. Whereas most places that he went to, he'd only make one or two converts and then get run out of town. And so it was a very big difference with, with the Corinthian church. And so Paul felt quite attached to this Corinthian church. He, he felt responsible for them. And within this very letter, he says, look, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I don't know if you realise it or not, just how much a missionary or a pastor or a teacher feels connected to and responsible for a local church, even after they've left that local church. Particularly if they've been there for some time. Some people today try to portray ministry as a profession, where you know the minister is a professional, he's employed by us, he comes to town, provides a professional service, and then after a few years he moves on to another town, relinquishing all previous care and responsibility for the people he's been ministering to for a fair number of years. But ministry isn't a profession; it's a calling. And any pastor or teacher worthy salt will at times continue to feel a need to encourage that church which they used to live with, uh, and to encourage them, to urge them on in their faith in following Jesus. And if you think about your life, you may have a relationship with a former pastor or a teacher or someone who is influential in your faith and someone who even when you meet them today, even now, that person might take a, a special interest in you and, and want to know, how are you currently going walking with God? Can you think of anyone who you know like that in your life? Someone who's been influential in your faith journey? I hope you can, because it's important to have these people. But why do they care still? Well, because they care. They um, care. Because they want to know that the impact that they want, that their ministry once had on your life has not now been lost. He wants you to know that you've been growing in the Lord. And I don't know if you realise just how much it hurts. How much it hurts a pastor's heart like Paul's when those who he once brought to Christ and those who he spent his life with... Um, how when they get distracted from the main thing and and they begin to fall for false teachings, or when they start puffing themselves up with self-righteous zeal, or when they cease to live as the disciples of Jesus that they're meant to be, and as we studied this letter, we might see a different side of Paul to what we've ever seen before. Some of us we sort of think Paul he's a rough and tough, hard, hard-line pastor, and and what he says goes. Sometimes people feel like that about Paul, but as we read this letter. Th- That we've just begun, we're going to see some times where Paul just wears his heart out on his sleeve. And we'll see the sadness that Paul has that this Corinthian church um, have fallen so far that even some within the church have even turned against Paul personally. See, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, it has, the reason I chose this letter is because it has some of the most amazing teaching on spiritual gifts and love and marriage and singleness and about communion and the Christian resurrection and how the Christian church functions as a body. It's got all of this amazing teaching. But the thing is, all of this amazing teaching, which we're going to be studying over the next few months, is all written in the context of trying to get a church to stop fighting with one another and trying to get them to stop bickering with each other and to begin to be loving one another and forgiving one another, just to stop them from standing up for their own rights and their own views and to become a community of Christ. You know, some people feel that because divisions are evident in churches today, well, this must be a sign that the age of churches is a thing of the past and God doesn't want churches anymore. Rubbish! Divisions were happening in Paul's day. This is the first generation of churches. These are one of the first churches that had even begun. And this letter to the Corinthians is written for the very purpose of getting the Christian church in Corinth away from quarrelling and away from dividing and away from schism and to being the people of God together in one mind or one mindset and one judgment or or one consent or or a voluntary willingness to accept and love one another. Tuesday of this week just gone, the 31st of October was a very important anniversary. Does anyone know what it was? Reformation. Reformation. Yeah. And not just not just any old anniversary. Um it's amazing, you know. The, the only person who could tell me that in church was young Ben, and now we've got the youngest person here telling us this. Um, the 31st of October was the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. Um, it's it's 500 years since Martin Luther stuck his thesis on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, and this is the date which is recognised generally as the beginning of the Reformation. Church schism, the tearing apart of the Christian church, has been a fact of life basically ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. For goodness sake, in the little town of St George here, we, we, we have eight Christian churches represented and a couple of other little home groups. Now, most major denominations have been formed over big issues – And big disagreements around the understanding of God, the the nature of sin and grace and on issues of church practice. It happens. It has happened. But way too many local fellowships have split and way too many people have fallen out of fellowship over little issues or over politics or pride or self-righteousness and a failure to love and respect anyone who disagrees with them. And as we read this letter to the Corinthians, we're going to see that's pretty much what was going on in the church in Corinth. It was a church of division. It had been reported to Paul that that there was quarrelling and division. Now, the Greek word um, is the one from which we get our word schism. Uh, The other day I was working in a a tight spot. I should have just shifted my ute, but my ute was still there and I was working in this tight spot and I needed to quickly duck through and get something, so I turned on, on the side and duck, ducked through. And, of course, as I did, my shirt caught on one of the tarp hooks on the ute and it just ripped the whole thing apart. And you know what it's like when, when you go, oh, oh, no, Mum's going to be cranky at this. And it's just the shirt just totally ripped apart. And um, that is the way that this word is used. It's like the rending of a shirt being ripped or torn apart. And I've been in a number of churches when issues between individuals in a church have threatened to tear the whole church apart. And Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions, right? No schism, no tearing apart among you, but that you be united or joined together, or knitted together. Um, the Greek word there is the same word that's used for the disciples, you know, when the disciples were mending the nets, and Jesus come along and found them. It's the same word there, mending the nets, knitting them back together again, to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's appealing in the name of Jesus Christ for their church, not to tear apart, but to be knitted together. He's appealing for the tear that has already begun to now be repaired. And so the problem in the Corinthian church, well, it seems like it's political. And as we read on further, we're going to find that it's also over spiritual issues, but it's an unspiritual response that's involved there. And it seems to be personality driven. But for the cure for this, Paul draws on who God is and he centres us on Christ Jesus You know, the church, we're just a bunch of people. And if we try and and just stay together and be all united just because we're people, well, we'll eventually come unstuck. But if we concentrate on who God is and we are united in Christ, then that's a unity that can endure. So... Before the split began, the the, the Corinthian church actually had a fair bit going for them, but it was all by the grace of God. Do you know what newer churches lack? Like if you want to plant a little church somewhere, do you know what the main thing is you, you want to have involved in that church? I picked two things. People with a good Christian knowledge and people who are able to get up in the front of others and speak about Christ. That's two of the main things that a church really needs to be able to get going. But the church, and a lot of churches are missing out on these things, and we know when we're lacking them. But the church in Corinth, they'd been blessed with people who could do this. We're told that there were people there with knowledge, and there were people there who could speak. And verse 6 says it was, that this was evident because of the way that the church could testify to Jesus Christ. Now, this is a good thing. In fact, this Corinthian church was a church that had been blessed greatly with spiritual gifts of all kinds. But as we get into this letter, we're we're going to discover that what they lacked most was love and unity. Spiritual gifts were being used to hurt. And a sense of knowledge, you know, we know stuff, we know what's right, was puffing up pride. And eloquent speech is never the power of the gospel. The cross is. And so this Corinthian church had all of these things going for it, but it had lost one of its most important things for a church to have, to be a fellowship of love and unity. And I reckon the key problem for the Corinthian church could probably be boiled down to pride. Pride is where priority is given to self-opinion. I know it's right. I'm more spiritual than what you are. You don't know what I know. You don't have the gifts that I have. And by the time we get to chapter 8, we're going to hear Paul say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And... So rather than pride and spiritual superiority, in Paul's opening remarks of this letter, we find the basis for fellowship, the basis for unity, the basis for a church to hold together as one. And that basis is to know that we're all called and that we all stand on an equal footing in Christ. Verse 2 says that we're called to be saints together with all Christians, with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're not called to be saints alone. We're called to be saints together. By the way, you know that saints, you know what saints mean, don't you? Saints means holy ones, okay? So we tend to think of the saints as those very special Christians who, are, who stand above everybody else. No, biblically, saints are the holy ones. And when they refer to the saints, they're talking about Christians, so, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. Um, so, I could call you Saint Brett and Saint Emma and Saint so and so and Saint so and so and Saint so and so. So, we're not called to be saints alone. We're called to be saints together. But how do we get holy? Do you know who the self proclaimed experts on holiness were in Jesus's day? Jesus didn't get on with them very well. They're the Pharisees, um, and the Pharisees aimed to be holy by separating themselves from everybody else who they deemed to be unholy. And they used to accuse Jesus, "Well, you can't be holy. You can't possibly be holy. Look who you're spending time with. Look, look who you're hanging out with. You can't be holy." But separate, separating ourselves—that's not, not what makes us holy. When we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when we become holy. And we don't become holy on our own. We become holy with the saints together. No one is greater than the other. And it's the same when it comes to the spiritual gifts. Any spiritual gift or any godly ability that we have is a gift from God. We haven't earned it. We don't excel spiritually through our natural or practised goodness. We can't claim a spiritually superior position because we have a certain spiritual gift that somebody else doesn't have. Even possessing Christian knowledge or eloquence in speech isn't something that we should have pride over because that too is a gift of God. In fact, Paul said of himself that he didn't preach with eloquence. And I personally see that as a great source of encouragement because I'm not elegant, elegant, eloquent. I'm not elegant either, by the way. Uh, I'm not eloquent. uh, Only way I can manage to get some words out is because two reasons. I I do a fair bit of practice trying to get those words out, but also because it's a gift of God. Naturally, I cannot speak well, but God helps me to do it. And it came... It's also the same with knowledge. I don't know everything. When I'm preparing for a message, it takes a lot of time. It takes time to study the scriptures and to seek God and pray about it and read what other Bible teachers have to say and sometimes even listen to other messages given by other preachers to hear how they believe what what they believe it means. And the fourth reason there's no room for pride in the church is every one of us, Awaiting for the coming of Jesus. And while we wait, it's Jesus who maintains our guiltlessness. Verse 7 says, You wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord who sustains me is the same Lord who sustains you. Um, I can't sustain my own guiltlessness. It's good for us to try. But I fail often. Don't ask Robin, she'll tell you how often. But I fail living righteously, which is why I rely on Christ and his forgiveness to make me holy again. And it's the same with you. So I have no reason for pride that I'm being a better Christian than what you are, and you have no reason for pride that, oh, you're a better Christian than what somebody else is, Because we're all in the same boat. None of us are holy except for what Christ has done. Verse 9 God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What fellowship are we called into? What fellowship are you called into? What fellowship am I called into? The Fellowship of Jesus Christ. What is the Fellowship of Jesus Christ? Well, have a look around you. It's a small fellowship here today. But this is the Fellowship of Jesus Christ. Right here. This is what you're called to. We were with the Fellowship of Jesus Christ in St George this morning. And then again, there were heaps of other little groups of Fellowship of Jesus Christ. In that town at the same time. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. I am your brother in Christ. You are my brother or sister in Christ. God didn't merely call me or you to fellowship with Jesus. God called us to fellowship together as the fellowship of Christ. And the church, the unity of the church, the love of the church, the care that we have for one another, is a witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we know this to be true don't we when a church love each other that is a true witness to christ we can see it easier with the with the negative when a church are fighting and bickering what do the world see they just go oh they can't even agree with one another they talk about love but they can't love you know it's a real witness to christ when we do love okay so So this Corinthian church, despite its abundance of spiritual gifts and and knowledge and eloquent speakers, it had become a church that was getting torn apart. It was was a church of factions where one would say, well, I follow this teacher, And and the other would say, well, I follow this one, and another one would say, well, I follow this teacher, and then somebody thinks, right, well, I've got the higher ground here. I follow Christ. You just watch what I'm doing. I'm following Christ, not these other teachers, but Paul said What are you doing? Is Christ divided? All of these teachers are serving the one God. Christ isn't divided. But what if they were to lose their attitudes of superiority? What if they realised, hey, we all worship the one Christ. And without Christ, I'm nothing. What does Paul hope? for that church in Corinth to be. Verse 10 is translated by different versions of the Bible quite differently. And the reason for this is some of the original Greek, it's quite difficult to find a matching word in the English. And so the English Standard Version says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The New International Version says that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. The New Revised Standard Version says but that you may be united in the same mind and the same purpose. See what I'm saying here? Like these words, they're all similar but quite different in what they're saying there. One has judgment another has thought another has purpose what it's getting at is to be united in our mind or perhaps a better translation might be frame of mind and judgment or thought or purpose might be better understood as opinion and what tears a church apart apart sometimes from really big issues of course But what often tears a church apart is quite often frame of mind and opinion. And if our frame of mind and our opinion are yielded to Christ, and if our frame of mind doesn't come from a place of superiority, and if our opinions aren't held from a place of superiority, then this is a church that actually has a bit of hope of being united. We... Like the Corinthian church, well, we're called to be saints together. Self-righteousness and attitudes of spiritual superiority are what destroy the Christian church. I need to know that I'm not spiritually superior to any of you. And you need to know that you're not spiritually superior to somebody else in the church. Because we all depend on Christ. I depend on Christ as much as you do. And you depend on Christ just as much as the person sitting beside you. And don't we depend on each other? Don't I depend on you? And don't you depend on me? And don't you depend on each other? Let me tell you, if we don't depend on each other, that's pride. And unless we're depending on each other, we're not the fellowship of Christ. We're going to discover that as we get it further into this book. So I'm really looking forward to these studies in 1 Corinthians. My prayer is that as we humble ourselves, Christ will unite us, and strengthen us to the end so that we will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to thank you for the calling that you've given us to that we are called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just pray that we as a church would be totally yielded to you. And Lord, that you would make us of one mind, of one mindset, of one opinion, of one purpose, of one thought, And Lord, help us as a church to be witnesses to Christ by our love and unity with one another. Let us pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.